0: Father in heaven, Lord, we are still waiting, still waiting for your Son to come, still waiting for that day when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, still waiting for that trumpet sound, still waiting for the voice of the archangel as it descends. Help us, Lord, not to lose hope in this time. But to look forward and to prepare for the day that is coming. Father, we've all sinned against you and against heaven. And Lord, we are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. Father, your son, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom himself, will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that he would speak to us today, this special day that you have blessed, sanctified, and set apart. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. The wedding, the wedding. I have a testimony actually from when my wife and I got married. It's very easy when organizing a wedding that is primarily just about two different people uh, to make that day entirely about those two people. We, when we were planning this out, came to a consensus, an agreement that if anyone was going to be lifted up on that day, it would be Jesus himself. And we wanted the day to be more about what God has done for us than what we had done or were going to do for each other. And we tried to put a conscious effort into making sure that each part of the service uh, was understandable to people that did not yet have a relationship with Jesus. Weddings probably more than any other service, maybe alongside funerals in our church, I think have the greatest capacity for evangelism. Rarely are you going to get more unconverted or more unbelievers present in your church than when there is a wedding or unfortunately when there is a funeral. And I remember at our wedding um, our wedding ceremony in the evening, a young lady came to me and my wife and she said, I just want to let you guys know that I've seen a picture of God today that has made me want to serve Him for the rest of my life. And I think that's the whole point of the wedding. The whole point of the wedding is that one would make a commitment for the rest of their life. Now, marriages in the time of Jesus marriages when the bible was written differ wide, wildly from what you and i see as marriages today there's a lot more preparation back then there was far more ceremony and a lot more formalism there's usually there was usually a number of steps that i want to briefly take you through the steps of marriages before and in the day of christ step one would have been the proposal or the betrothal what would happen is the groom would go to the father's house, the father of the bride, and he would there, uh, he, first of all, he would leave, listen to me, because this is all gonna come back, it's all gonna come full circle. The groom would leave his father's house, and he would head to the house of the bride, and there he would make the proposal to her, a payment would be put down for her, and then they would establish the marriage covenant. They would make sure that what this marriage was going to look like was set out before them both. Step two would be what we call the period of engagement. The groom would then return to his father's house, and that usually meant being apart from his bride-to-be for about 12 months. And in those 12 months at his father's house, he would build an extension to his father's house, which would serve as the house for him and his wife to be then he would return from his father's house to the to the place of the bride but he would return at a time unknown to the bride and just before his return the bride would spend time undergoing a period of ritual cleansing it was in stage three upon his return upon his arrival That the wedding ceremony would happen. And a few people, not everyone, a few people were invited to this wedding ceremony. And then step four. Step four, he would return with his bride now to his father's house. There the marriage would be consummated and the wedding feast would be celebrated for the next seven days. And that wedding feast would consist of anyone who wanted to be there. Now, there is a reason. There is a reason why Christ and his church are likened to a groom and his bride. The father was actually the one that paid for the bride. In the very first step, it would be the father that put down the payment. And we see that step one has already been accomplished in this analogy. Step one the father has already paid. For the one whom his son loves. He paid that price with what? With his son's life. And so step two follows shortly after. Jesus said, I go to a place where you cannot come. The marriage doesn't work like that. I don't propose and then take you back home with me. No, no, no. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. In my father's house there are what? Many mansions. I go, why? To prepare a place for you. So that when I come back, I can receive you unto myself. Step three, the bride would be fetched. Mind you, it was not the son that decided his time of return. It was the father. The father was the only one that knew when the son would return. Because he would request the son to return. And the only condition upon that was that the son's work would be finished, the preparation would be complete. Now the bride, the bride doesn't know. The bride doesn't know exactly what time. So do you know what that means? It means that she always has to be ready. You know what that means, ladies? That's like knowing that your wedding day is 12 months from now and spending every single day from now getting ready for that day. 12 whole months in preparation for one single day. 365 days of preparation for one day. How many of you think that sounds a little overcompensated? But here's the thing. The bride has 365 days to prepare for that one day God has given us 70 years or more to prepare for that one day. And how many of us are still unprepared? Twelve months doesn't seem like a long time anymore. I've been here 28 years. 28 times 12, you do the math. Still wake up with my own garments on. But the bride would not be caught completely unawares because when the groom would get close, there would be a loud shout. A message would go forth. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Be prepared. Be prepared. Do you see why Jesus uses this analogy so many times? Do you see why it seems to be, especially as we get towards the end of his life, the thing that he keeps going back to, the marriage, the marriage, the marriage. I remember as those eight months became two months, and then became a single month, and then three months, sorry, three weeks And then two weeks, you know what happened around the two-week mark? For those of you that were here, the panic monkey came out. Some of you remember the panic monkey. Oh, no, it was the panic monster. I keep getting those two mixed up. It was the panic monster came out about two weeks. I said, hey, Dean, you haven't even written your vows yet. The panic monster came out. And I remember getting a week, a week away from the wedding. And now I downloaded those silly apps as well six days left five days left phone would be randomly popping fireworks all over the place to let me know that there was four days left i remember one way of trying to just get it off my mind was to go and preach i traveled three hours getting a call to preach the night before on the sabbath we were getting married on the sunday and it was just too much for me to bear I was like, I just, I need some time out of this space where everyone is just asking me if I'm ready and what I think and, and what's going to happen. I just need to go a good four hours up north to people where, places where nobody knows me and just preach the word. And it was therapy, it was therapy. And then the night came and I headed back down to London, headed to the church and spent maybe another seven or eight hours setting the church up. I went to bed at four o'clock in the morning to get up for seven o'clock, panic monster going crazy. Dean, you still haven't written your (laughs) vows. And you know what's the interesting thing? You know what's interesting about this whole wedding process? I've been to many weddings. I know how weddings go down. I know all of the little formalities. I know the stages, I know how the entrances work. I've I've got it down exactly how fast you're meant to walk down the aisle. I know all of these things, I've seen it so many times. But on the day, I realized something. I realized that the knowledge of knowing what was going to happen still did nothing to help me prepare for that happening. I knew I was gonna stand there and say my vows. Do you think that helped when I stood there to say my vows? No. I knew that I was going to have to say I do. Do you, think, do you think the knowledge of that helped when I stood there? Oh, yeah, Dean, remember, this is the part that we practiced. None of that helped. The knowledge of what was about to happen did not make it easier to go through it. Seventh-day Adventists. We have it in our name. The advent of Christ. The coming of Jesus. Here's the thing. We know what happens. We're living before the event, yet we know exactly what's going to take place. Almost to the T. If you don't know, here's a quick synopsis. The remnant of God faithfully preach the three angels' message. And eventually, Sunday laws are enforced, there's a shaking within the church, the latter rain falls on God's people, and they are empowered to preach the last message ever given to earth, known as the loud cry. And from then, from whence that goes forward, everyone is divided into two groups. Those that accept the seal of God And those that relegate themselves to accepting the mark of the beast. And when the sealing of God is finished, probation will close. And from that point forth, God's wrath will be poured out without mixture. The seven last plagues befalling the entire earth. As God's people are vindicated, as God's character is vindicated, and then Jesus returns. We know these things. And if you don't know these things, by the way, if you're not too clued up on how all of this has worked, you can practically have everything down by the end of the day. We've got books that were specifically written for you and I so that we would know these things. Books like Last Day Events. Books like The Great Controversy. Written for God's church so that we would know. But I think... I think, written for another purpose. Not just so that we would know, but so that we would be ready. And I propose to you this morning that there is a difference between knowing and being prepared. Just because you know about it doesn't mean you're ready for it. And you might think, oh, but that's obvious, preacher. Is it? Is it really that obvious? Because if we truly were not trusting in our own knowledge of what's going to happen to get us through that time, then we'd probably be doing more to actually prepare for that time. You know, the bride could not just state that she knew that the the groom was coming. She could not just rest on her laurels and say, well, I'm sure he's on his way. She had to undergo a period of cleansing. She had to be ready. She had to make sure her dress was ready. She had to make sure that it was her. You're welcome. (laughs) She was busy preparing. She was not idle. Might I remind you that those that were idle, when the bridegroom was returning, fell asleep. And they were banned forevermore from that event. There is a work to do to prepare for the wedding. But Jesus knew that on a large scale this work would not be done. Picture it for yourself. Imagine that Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. Spending his life. Cleansing it of our sins. Whilst we here on earth spend our life filling it back up. We have employed our our Savior as our slave. But Jesus knew it would be so. Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 24, when you're there, just say amen. Amen. can hear some scrolling I'll wait Matthew chapter 24 The Bible says from verse 36 Speaking of that day But of that day and hour knoweth no man no not the angels of heaven but who but my Father only And then he says But as the days of Noah were, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jump over to Luke chapter 17 with me. It wasn't just the days of Noah that were mentioned. Luke chapter 17, we're in verse 29. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so thus it shall be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And if you jump up to 27, again, it mentions the days of Noah. But verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they did drink, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they built it. So when we look at the days of Noah and the, do- and the days of Lot combined, what are they doing? Well, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, and they're building. If there's one word that could sum all of that up, do you know what it is? They're living. What are they doing when, to our knowledge, the two most cataclysmic events to have befallen the earth thus far are right at the doorsteps? They're just living. Marrying and giving in marriage. Eating and drinking, partying, celebrating. Buying and selling. Planting and building. Studying and passing. Or maybe studying and failing. Anything really but preparing. Now here's the thing. Anything wrong with marrying? With giving in marriage? With eating? With drinking? With buying? With selling? With planting? With building? No. The Lord said whatever you do whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with these things, but what it appears to be in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot is that these things, do you remember last night we talked about these things? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all what? All these things shall be added unto you. These things became a priority. Now I'm not saying that they're a priority in your life, just saying that they' are a priority in some people's life. When Noah was telling that the flood was coming, did the people know? That's a question. Did the people know that the flood was coming? You believe they did? Some of you are starting to doubt now that I've asked the opposite question. Stay true to your beliefs. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. We'll read it again. Verse 38, For as in the days that were before the flood they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and what? What does the Bible say in verse 39? And what? And they did not know. Why didn't they know? Was Noah unfaithful in giving the message? Noah preached for how long? For an entire generation, 120 years of preaching righteousness. Noah was counted righteous, the eighth man to get into the ark. Anyone ever stop to think why he was the eighth man? He's the last one in. Why do you think he's the last one in? Because he was the first one out there preaching to everyone. Preached until the very last moment when the hand of the angel of the Lord would just lift up that door. The eighth man into the ark. You think he was unfaithful? No, no, You see, here's the thing. Noah preached the message so that everyone alive at that point would know. But here's the difference. There is a difference between an intellectual assent to truth and a practical understanding and a belief in it. If you know, but the knowledge is doing nothing to change you, it's because you actually don't know. You haven't got the first clue about it. You're telling me that you know there's a flood coming, but you don't have an ark? That's because you don't know then. The thing about Noah, the reason why Noah's message about this great day that was coming that the people needed to prepare for, the thing that was so powerful about his message was not merely that he was preaching about something great that was gonna take place that had never taken place before. Rather, it was, it was the fact that he had his Bible in one hand and his hammer in the other. It was the fact that he could preach the message but standing behind this man was, was not flowers and mirrors. It was a boat to show the people that whilst this may sound astronomically insane to you because rain has never even dropped from the sky, I believe it. You tell me, do the people closest to you believe that you believe? Can people see your ark? Because to preach a message that a flood is coming and have no boat beside you, that's insanity. That's the most discouraging message I've ever heard. You're telling me that you know something's coming and you're doing nothing about it. Nothing. What did I say? Nothing turns non-Christians away from God more than a message that the believers do not live you want to preach about a second coming you want to preach about a wedding brother you don't even have a suit where are you going what's the point of having the knowledge if that knowledge is doing nothing for you and you know, you know where we've made a tragic mistake? It's right here. In our very schools. I'm not pointing my finger specifically at Southern. I'm pointing my finger at our schools. Because throughout the ages, we have become so focused on knowledge. Everything has shifted so that it's all become about knowledge. What do you know? The students that we celebrate are not the ones that are out there working for Jesus. The missionaries on the other side of the world. No, no, they're the ones that have the highest GPAs. Oh, I've got a 4.0, praise the Lord. Yeah, four years of college, no souls won. What's the point of your knowledge if it's not changing you? What's the point of setting assignments, teachers? That's just merely about reflecting another man's thoughts. God did not put me on this earth so I could regurgitate some PhD's dissertation. He put me here and gave me an education so that I could reflect his image. Where's the assignments that give you the word of God and say, go home, study this thing, and write a paper on how this has changed your life? True education. Give me a break. It's not just in the schools where we've made this error. We do this all the time in our evangelistic series as well. 28 sermons, 14 days, be there. You never told me it was a boot camp. You never told me that would have had to have done six months of prior training to even understand the language that you're speaking. That's what we do with prophecy. You know what we've made prophecy? We've made it Bible arithmetic. Well, brothers, if you sit down here for three months long enough, you'll know that 457 plus 2,300 minus 1 equals 1844. Here's your degree. Is that prophecy? That's the point of prophecy. Really? Because when I read Second Peter chapter 1, Peter told me that the moral purpose of prophecy was that the day star would arise in your heart. That day star being Jesus. When's the last time you heard a prophecy seminar all about Jesus? The point of prophecy was Jesus. Any prophecy that's not pointing to Jesus is pointless. And I'll be honest, I don't care what the third toe on the left foot of the beast is if you're not using any of your toes to win souls for Jesus. (laughs) The purpose of our message is not to factory produce intellectual sinners. It's to create medical missionaries who at their heart want nothing but to see souls in the kingdom. But no, 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 no. We'll just, we'll settle for knowledge. As long as we know, as long as we know, we'll be fine. Ellen White says in the book, Desire of Ages, that the greatest deception of the human mind in Christ's day was that a mere assent to the truth constitutes righteousness. In all human experience, <clears throat> pardon me, a theoretical knowledge of the truth has been proved to be insufficient for the saving of the soul. It does not bring forth the fruits of righteousness. A jealous regard for what is termed theological truth often accompanies a hatred of genuine truth. As made manifest in the life, the darkest chapters of history are burdened with the record of crimes committed by bigoted religionists. The faith, she says, that is unto salvation is not a mere intellectual assent to the truth. He who waits for entire knowledge before he will exercise faith cannot receive blessing from God. It is not enough to believe about Christ, we must believe in Him. You see, we know. We know that at the end of time, the mark of the beast will go out. Do you know what the mark of the beast is? Yes, okay. We know what it's not. It's not a barcode, it's not a microchip, it's not an iPhone. We know what it is, though. But do we really? In my studies, I've come to one simple conclusion. That the mark of the beast is simply a call to worship. It's a song. It's a call to worship for the carnal heart. They're singing already from the same songbook. They're playing to the same beat. The reason why we can get to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. <clears throat> and the Bible says that the whole world <clears throat> whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life shall wander after the beast. The reason why we can get there is because when that call goes out to accept that mark, it's going out to people whose hearts are carnal, unconverted, already aligned with the Antichrist. It is the logical next step. It's just a call to worship. Will you publicly worship the thing that you have been privately worshiping for so long? With a little bit of persecution behind it to help you make your decision. I believe that there will be people on this earth that have never heard of the mark of the beast, that will never receive it. In the same way that there will be people on this earth that preached the mark of the beast, that will be first in line. You know why? Because it's never been about the knowledge. And don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. It helps, it helps to know some things. It helps to read. It helps to have an understanding. But just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean that you grew up in Christ. You may sing hymns, but it doesn't mean you know Him. It's not about the knowledge. Have you allowed that knowledge? Have you allowed the word of truth to pierce you to the very bone? The key to overcoming in the last days is not knowing the timeline of last day events. It's about having a last day heart. It's about having a heart that has been touched by the love of Jesus that wants nothing more than to touch other hearts. This is what marriage is all about. This is what the wedding is all about. You're standing there and you're looking at the one that you love and you're saying, here's my heart. Here's my life. And you know when it comes to that point, when it comes to that time, That, my friends, is not the time to make a decision. You don't make the decision standing at the altar looking in their eyes. The decision has to come long before that point. What you're doing at that point, you're surrendering. You're saying to them, you know, I have once I have dreams, I have desires, I have aims, outcomes, I have objectives, I have plans, and I will give up every single one of them for you. That's how you know you're ready to get married. You're ready to give up every single thing you have, have ever thought of, have ever owned, just for that person. I promised my wife, I said, if life with you means homeless in a cardboard box, I'd trade it for the world. I'd trade the world for that, I'd give everything that I have for that. And I remember standing there on that day, looking into my wife's eyes as tears rolled down her cheek. And whilst I'm not going to recite my vows because I don't want to make you guys cry, <laughs> I basically said to her, babe my hands are yours, my feet are yours, my ears are yours, my mouth is yours, my body is yours, my ears are yours, my life is yours, everything that I have is yours. And our marriage with Jesus is no different to that. As we stand there in front of him, blood rolling down his cheeks. Jesus, my hands are yours. My feet, they're yours. My ears, my mouth, my body, my eyes, my life is yours. Christ has no body now but yours. You, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, are the body of Christ. He moves when you move. He goes where you take him. He touches the people where you are. In the same way at the wedding that two individuals unite and become one, So it is the same that Christ and His bride blend, the human and the divine. I remember when my wife and I were getting marriage counseling, (laughs) pre-marriage counseling mind you. We wanted to be put through our paces before we made the decision thought it might be better than to spend money trying to fix it afterwards. Prevention is better than cure. Better that you build a fence on the edge of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. And so we went there with Pastor Alan Hush. And we traveled three hours every month for those eight months to spend a day with him. And I remember the first day that we got there, he said, Dean, Dorling, I hope you don't regret this. That set the tone. He said, I want you to know, as your pastor, as your counselor, as your advisor, I have one goal over the next eight months. And it is simple. My single aim and objective in the time that I have with you guys is to make sure that you do not get married. Thanks for that, Pastor. <laughs> That's, that, that is what we were looking for, yeah. He said, if you can get through these eight sessions, and if you can stay faithful to one another in these eight sessions, if you still desire one another after these eight sessions, then you can rest assured I think it's God's will for you guys to unite. Okay. And then he said this. He said, in my time observing you, you guys are both completely different people. And he meant that, because we are, when they say opposites attract, I think they were talking about us. But he said that in that He sees the work of God and he explained why because I was kind of puzzled he said because Dean Dorling if both of you were the same then one of you would be unnecessary I believe that it is one of God's greatest joys to take something that looks like it cannot be blended with something else and blend it into the most beautiful picture. And that's where you come in. Because if you look inside, and if you have anything like the picture that I have inside sometimes, it looks, theoretically, impossible that my life, my character more so, and the character of Christ can ever be blended together. But my friends, if there's anything that you've learned from attending these meetings, I hope that it's this. I hope that you see that in the same way that a man desires to spend his life with his woman, and a woman desires to spend her life with a man the same way, if not more so, God wants to spend his entire existence, which exceeds beyond eternity, with you. And he will blend. He will take all that you have, all that you are, every good thing that he ever put in you, He can blend you with the image of Jesus. Not so that we all become cookie-cutter Christians, are you with me? But so that in our individuality we can reflect the image of God. Do not forget that the image of God was first reflected in plurality. It was man and woman, two opposites, that when they were together God said, this is my image. This is marriage, taking two beings that look like they cannot be together, that it's just not going to work, that two lives, two selfish hypocrites cannot possibly selflessly live for one another. And God says, oh, just you wait. You thought parting the Red Sea was special? You thought raining manna down was something? Oh, man, wait till you see what I do with these guys. The greatest testimony this earth has ever seen is a family united in Jesus. It's why Satan hates families. It's why he's done everything he can to pervert the image of sex in the mind of young people so that he can make you married to everyone. Married to self, even. God is saving you. God is saving you for him. The bridegroom cometh. Don't think you're ready just because you know that. The bridegroom cometh. It's time to get ready. It's time that you put as much effort into your spiritual life now as though you were actually getting married. How much effort would you be putting in then? How many phone calls would you be making? How many people would you be contacting to try and help you out? We're not speaking about your marriage. We're speaking about the marriage of an eternity. I hope, I hope if anything, that you've been encouraged that your life can be blended with Jesus. I want you to turn as we close. To the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, chapter two. The Bible says in Genesis chapter twenty four Genesis, sorry, Genesis chapter two, verse twenty four. Therefore, Shall a man leave his father and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh? Jesus left his father for you. Jesus left heaven for you. Jesus left his life behind for you. Will you leave yours for him? that's your desire I'm going to ask that you stand as we pray together asking the Lord to prepare us for the day that is coming you know I was puzzled when given this theme joy (laughs) GYC Southeast puzzled the wife of Jesus It's got to be the most specific theme I've ever, ever been given in my nine years of preaching the word. You know why I was confused? Because throughout all the Bible, it looks like the church, God's people, are the bride. And then you get to Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19 verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife had made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 9, and he says to me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. I'm like, okay, this is a little strange. Chapter 21 verse 1 says this, and I saw a new earth and a new heaven. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down from god out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband And verse three says, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. There shall be no more sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And then he concludes as this, come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And it baffled me. How is it all of a sudden? New Jerusalem is the bride. I thought it was God's people. I woke up extra early this morning to try and figure this one out. And it dawned upon me. God's people are His church. His church is made up of His people. That's where His presence is. That's where He tabernacles. And at the end of time, at the end of these thousand years that pass... As the earth that we now call home is destroyed. John looks and sees the new Jerusalem. And he's told by the angel, that's the bride. Why is that the bride? Because now you're in it. Because now you're in it. The bride of Christ now calls new Jerusalem home now calls the new earth, home. And they become synonymous. Friends, heaven is yours if you want it. The new earth is yours if you want it. This marriage, this wedding, this commitment for eternity is yours. If today you would say yes. And so just like last night, I want to make one final appeal. If today you want to say yes to that for the first time, for the first time maybe, or if you've wandered far away from God, and today you hear His voice calling you back, inviting you back to this wedding of an eternity, I'm going to ask that you come to the front. Maybe you didn't have a chance to come last night. Maybe last night you were battling over making that decision. But the voice of God is calling you. If He's calling you today, if you hear the Spirit speaking, touching your heart, you want to commit your life to the one who committed His for you, I'm just going to ask that you come to the God bless you sister. If there's anyone else. Praise the Lord. Jesus is asking Will you marry me? Will you promise me your life? Will you have me? Will you hold me in sickness? But where he's going, there's no death. In that bride, there's no death. No tears, no pain, no sorrow. not just the wedding of an eternity, guys, it's the marriage of an eternity. Wait just a few seconds and then we'll pray together. If there's anyone else that feels impressed to come forward. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the invitation alone, the invitation alone is more than we deserve. But to have the actual opportunity to enter into a covenant with you, a relationship with you that will span eternity. Father, we don't deserve that. but how can we say no to Jesus? How can we say no to what he did? How can we say no to what he's doing? How can we say no to what he's going to do? Father, we know that day is coming. We know everything. We ask that you would help us to be prepared for it. Help us to get our lives in order, Lord. Help us to prioritize your kingdom and your righteousness over these things. Give us a desire to seek you first. Give us a desire to say yes to the cross. Give us a desire to work during this waiting period. Give us a desire, Lord, to be clothed in your righteousness instead of our own. And may all that are gathered here be gathered on that day when you come, faithfully awaiting the bridegroom cometh. Let that be the message of our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.